Probably will not be saying this, but one more week. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. And today we will be looking at the first 16 verses. was tempted to do the whole chapter, but decided to slow it down. A lot here that's very helpful. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read. Um, I'm going to start in chapter 27 because of continuity purposes. Let's start uh, in verse 43 of chapter 27 and read through chapter 28, verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all, that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when they had, this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months... We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After, and after one day south, wind sprang, uh, after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Luke spends a good deal of time closing the book of Acts with the, the shipwreck and then ultimately being washed to the shore, as one uh, wise wag put it, as a bunch of wet rats, uh, not very complimentary. But why would Luke go to a great deal of pains to expand on this idea? Probably the main purpose of Luke in the book of Acts is to show us the relationship between God's providential control of history and the witness and mission of the church. All through the book of Acts, the primary theme has been the communication of the gospel through more and more of the world. The early chapters tend to show the gospel breaking through barrier after barrier and meeting with great success after success. There uh, is, in course, in Pentecost chapter 2, uh, is a huge exa uh, example of the gospel breaking through. The healing of the crippled beggar in chapter 3. The bold defense before the Sanhedrin and the apostles' release in chapters 4 and 5. The public denouncement of Simon the sorcerer in chapter 8. The mission to Samaria also in chapter 8. A conversion of the church's chief enemy Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9. The conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10 and 11. Church planting in Antioch, chapter 11. Peter's miraculous escape from prison in chapter 12. The striking down of Herod Agrippa I in chapter 12. And the highly successful missionary journeys of Paul from chapter 13 on. Outside of the death of Stephen, there's almost an unrelenting series of dramatic victories. But Luke does not want us to draw the wrong conclusion from the earlier chapters. If Luke had ended the book at chapter 20, the reader would certainly have gotten the false impression that if you serve God, he will give you victory after victory after victory. But we all know that ain't so, right? We all know that... Uh, Becoming a Christian is not a trip to Disney World or land. Pick your coast. Um, the history of Paul's imprisonment, his trials, his voyage to Rome, give us a whole new perspective of the nature of the church's mission between now and the second coming. Throughout these accounts, and especially in the story of the voyage, we are given profound lessons that God works out his purposes for the spread of his kingdom, and even and sometimes especially through our weakness and defeats rather than our strength and our victory. In chapter after chapter, we see how God controls history through apparent accidents despite hostile behavior of his enemies, despite the sins and flaws of his people, and even through the difficulties and sufferings for his best servants, God gets the mission done. The case study is right here. God gets Paul to Rome and opens the doors for him to preach the gospel in the most strategic places, yet he does so through imprisonment, danger, and trouble. We are not home yet. You'll find yourself saying that if you're a suffering person. We are not home yet. 
And it's going to be challenging, to say the least, to follow Christ in this God-forsaken world and to be faithful to the gospel and to share the gospel with people. But what does this mean to us? It means that we must not set ourselves up for disappointment, assuming that God only gives his servants comfortable lives. It means that we must assume, even when we can't see them, that there are ways that our trials and difficulties make us much more effective representatives of the kingdom than if our lives were actually going smoothly. Case in point, look at a person like Johnny Erickson Tata who, because of a diving accident in Chesapeake Bay, spent the, spending the rest of her life in a wheelchair, but having doors open to share the message that she would have never known ever. She's a Christian woman who, as a quadriplegic, has been a help to many, but who, without this injury, might have never, number one, found God as she did, nor be such an instrument to help his people. And so... Don't interpret difficulties and hardships as God's disapproval, but rather it might be his way for you to accomplish the greatest thing you will ever do and the greatest ministry. And if you're submitted to the Lord and trusting him, that's a good opportunity. John Stott says, Paul had expressed his desire to proceed straight from Jerusalem to Rome. Instead, listen to what happened to him. He was arrested in Jerusalem, subjected to endless trials, imprisoned in Caesarea, threatened with assassination, nearly drowned in the Mediterranean, nearly killed by soldiers, poisoned by a snake, we must remember that the sea, reminiscent of primeval chaos, was a regular Old Testament symbol of evil powers and opposition to God. But by God's providence, Paul reached Rome safe and sound, but he arrived as a prisoner. If you are stepping up in your life to be engaged in some sort of ministry, prepare for the backlash. There will be a backlash. The powers of darkness will assail you the more you attempt to do what God has called you to do. And uh, somebody asked me one time, do I believe in Satan? I said, yeah, I'm very familiar with him. I am very familiar with his strategies, very familiar with his ways of discouraging and um, um, attempting to intimidate me. And so the, the shipwreck that occurred off the coast of Malta has now... Uh, enabled the apostle uh, to live. Uh, the island, of course, was discovered to be Malta only when they got ashore. They were greeted, and it seemed to have been by some native people who must have been watching for ships in danger. They're probably not the first people to shipwreck near uh, Malta. That probably happened frequently uh, on the uh, journey from northern Africa to Italy. Uh, Rome, of course, being a world power at this time, and grain being shipped up from northern Africa to Italy would pass right by Malta, and I'm sure because of storms, they were experienced at this. The ship's crew, along with Paul and his companions, had brought the hand, uh, brought by the hand of God to a place of refuge from the storms that had engulfed them. And so the inhabitants of Malta showed, as it were, remarkable kindness to the strangers who came ashore. 
At every step of this perilous journey, God had prepared the way. The Lord had gone before the Apostle Paul, ensuring that nothing would stand in the way of his promise. And let's think for a moment about the promise of God, point number one in our outline, the promise of God. Luke begins the final chapter of Acts by recalling what he had written at the close of the previous chapter, all were brought safely to the land. We were brought safely through. Both statements are confirmations of the promise that God had made to the apostle in his night vision aboard the ship and that he would emerge from the ordeal safely. God had kept his word. His promise had proved effectual. He had done as he had said. God is to be trusted no matter what the circumstances may be. He had overruled the fierce elements of the storm, the wind, the rain, and the engulfing sea, not to mention the rickety ship and foolhardy mariners, or the intent of the soldiers to have the prisoners killed before leaving the ship. God had shown himself to be the master of the wind and the sea. And of course, as we have noted, Paul was given a very specific promise in a very specific situation. And uh, the life-threatening situation was that he would be preserved. God doesn't make that promise to all of us at all times. He did not make such a promise to the crew or the, uh, and passengers of the famous United Airlines Flight 93 that started its journey from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco International Airport on the fateful morning of September 11, 2001. When Flight 93 eventually crashed into an empty field just outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, about 150 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., there were no survivors. The heroic attempts of some of the passengers to overpower the hijackers brought about their death. And aboard was Todd Beamer, a graduate of Wheaton College and an active Christian whose words, let's roll, were uttered immediately after he had led those around him in the Lord's Prayer. God made no promises at this point to save Beamer's life or that of anyone else on board. But Beamer and any other believer on board had been given promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For those who love God, all things work together for good. These promises and many more are true for every Christian. God did, however, at this point, promise to save Paul, showing us that God makes a specific promise. He keeps it no matter what else happens. The promises are true for every Christian. Behind this truth lies another. The time of our death, according to the book of Hebrews, is appointed. We have, are appointed to die after that, the judgment. We are, as the saying goes, immortal till our work is done. Our lives are in God's hands, and that is surely calming if we fully believe it and trust his word in every circumstance, good and bad. It is the way to Christian maturity. Do you find the promises of God to be a great comfort to you? Do you make them your own? Do you use personal pronouns in your approach to God's promises? They are yours for the claiming. 
and and I'm not saying anything like name it, claim it, okay? Lose that. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I remember reading a book of his called Revival, and he talked about the old Puritan uh, method of prayer in which you sue God for uh, his promises. You bring a lawsuit against God saying, but you promised in your word you would be with me. You promised in your word this would be true or that would be true. You can pray with authority and boldness, praying back to God his promises. And of course, that was the reason for Paul's preservation. His time was not up. His life was not over. But then we get to the Maltese shore, and they meet with people who were, our translation is very nice in the way it translates the original Greek when it calls them natives. The actual word is barbarian. And it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that these were wild, savage people who would just as soon eat you for breakfast as look at you. But rather, that they did not speak Greek. Everyone who did not speak uh, the uh, lingua franca of the empire did not understand Greek, was regarded as a barbarian, and therefore these people spoke the Phoenician dialect, we know, and were um, very gracious to this shipwrecked crew. Uh, Very hospitable, very um, uh, going out of their way to help. As Paul and his seafaring companions came ashore, they were met by these islanders who showed them such great kindness, even lighting a fire for them on what was presumably an isolated beach. The native people showed unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and was cold. Luke adds that it began to rain, and because they had, were soaked through to the skin, they were freezing. As Paul joined in with others gathering sticks from the shoreline for the fire, an extraordinary incident took place. Now, we call it a snake bite. Luke in nowhere in this text says the snake bit Paul. But it does say that it fastened to him. Probably because of the time of the year, the snake was in sort of a torpor. And when Paul gathered the wood, it roused the snake from the torpor, and it had gotten a little warmer through the heat of the fire, and it clamped onto Paul's arm. Uh, now, I've read several scholars who argued that Paul really didn't get a snake bite at all. Rather, the snake was just on his arm, and he threw it into the fire. Uh, that kind of argument never gets anywhere with me, and it didn't with my father either. Um, That's as close as you can get to a snake biting you without him biting you, right? He's clamped on your arm. What else would a snake be doing clamped on your arm? He's chomping down on you. It was like that Sunday morning when I was in high school. I must have been 15 or 16. I was 16. I was driving at the time. And I'd taken the family car out for a fun time on Saturday night. And when we got in the car on Sunday morning to go to church, guess what happened? The glove compartment magically popped open. And inside the glove department was a bottle of cherry vodka. I'm sitting in the car, and what were the first words out of my mouth? It wasn't mine. 
It's the friend I had that I took home, and that's why it fell out. My daddy said, that's as close as you can get to doing it without doing it, and you're going to be punished as if you did it. I love that about my father. <laughs> he cut me no slack. That's why I'm such a good boy today. But he was on me. My mother cried the whole way to church. What have we done? What have we done with these boys? <laughs> it was drama. Yeah, and, and I remember my father just, uh, he, he wasn't hearing it. And I asked him one time, how do you know I do all this stuff? And he didn't say anything. I said, I know why you know, because you did it. And you know what it looks like when you're guilty. He said, you may be on to something there. But anyhow, snake bidding. Now this was a big deal, a big huge deal to these islanders because anything that happened like that had to be punishment, it had to be justice. In other words, what they basically say to him is, Paul, you escaped the judgment of the god Neptune, which is the sea, and now you're going to experience justice through decay in the Greek, which is the goddess of justice. That's what they said to him, because they were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. And so they knew right away, uh-oh, this guy must have done something horrible for a snake to bite him. Sounds like a lot of Christians I know when something bad happens to somebody, right? We immediately jump to the conclusion that they've been doing something awful. And, you know, even up to this point, Unbelieving scholars, maybe some that believe, didn't believe that poisonous snakes existed on islands. And at this day and time, there are no poisonous snakes in Malta. But apparently there were enough to know during this time that the people who lived on the island knew people got bitten by snakes and that they swelled up and they died. So apparently the snake bite was really from a poisonous viper and it really bit Paul. And so they fully expected him to experience death. The reasoning is clear. When bad things happen, it must be because we deserve them. Bad things are evidence of God's punishments. It's almost instinctive among believers as much as unbelievers to say in the midst of a trial, what have I done to deserve this? The default, it seems, is always to see pain as a judgment of some kind, whether it be by nature or God himself. Similarly, when Paul was able to shake off the viper, having experienced neither swelling nor death, they resorted to the opposite conclusion, Paul must be some kind of God. Obviously. He, however, shook off the creature in the fire, suffered no harm. They were uh, on pins and needles waiting for him to swell up, suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. The notion that all suffering is retribution, divine retribution, deserves closer examination. Was the storm that Paul had endured for two weeks or the snake bite, though strictly speaking, uh, the snake only clung to his hand, evidence that God was angry with the apostle? Or was God trying to teach the apostle Paul a lesson? For that matter, was Paul's arrest all of two years also evidence that he had moved off the track in some way or the other? Like Jonah, Paul had been running from where God wanted him to be. When bad things happen, we find ourselves asking the question, why? 
The issue is not an easy one to address for many, many reasons. Not the least because of the emotionally charged context in which this question must always be asked. It's one thing to write the problem of pain in an abstract piece of literature, weighing all the evidence and sorting through all the possibilities. But it's another thing to query the reason for suffering when one undergoes extreme suffering and needs all the comfort and reassurance we can give them. When we discuss this topic in a detached way, it loses something. But there are explanations in the Bible that we can look to to see uh, why we may be in a particular kind of trouble. First, we all must acknowledge that we live in a fallen world and things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're just not. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is fallen. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin also affected the entire world in all of its uh, aspects. Christians necessarily live in a world that is out of joint. The Bible tells us the creation groans in travail and birth, waiting for the restoration of the new heaven and the new earth. It's in bondage and subject to futility. Sin affects everything and as Christians, we're no more able to escape the clutches of the world, red in tooth and claw, than we are to demand submission. Christians in New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast were devastated by Hurricane Katrina that struck in September 2005, just as much as unbelievers were. There was no divine Passover, as has been seen in Egypt during the time of Moses when the angel of destruction visited only the homes where no sign of blood can be seen on the lentils and the doorpost. Christians are as subject to the ravages of the weather and the snake bites as anyone else. In addition, a fallen world includes individuals who are intent on doing evil. We may find ourselves caught up in their malice, whether we intend that to be the case or not. We live in a fallen world. Don't be so quick to judge others or even yourself when bad things occur. Second, we may need a mid-course correction. Some experiencing of suffering are God's ways of putting us back on track when we drift off course. Suffering provides painful buffers to ensure that we change direction when we give way to our selfish and sinful lust. Sometimes God directs things for us to experiencing suffer, suffering that comes from His fatherly hand, referred to in the Bible as discipline. The Father's corrective rod and it's a painful rod, will prevent us from drawing conclusions that we are victims of some tyrannical forces outside our Heavenly Father's uh, kingdom. The providence of God is a truth that ensures we never draw the conclusion that there's arbitrariness to our suffering. When we become a Christian, we are adopted into the family of God, and God becomes our personal father, as it were. But a father who loves us Love doesn't mean indulgence. It doesn't mean saying, oh, I love that boy, let him go his way. No, the Father loves us too much to watch us destroy ourselves and will sometimes usher in things to our life that corrects us, the rod of correction, so to speak, so that we'll get back on track. 
Only you can know that. I can't know that for you. But only you can know that in your own heart that perhaps God is bringing discipline to you. We endure discipline as hardship. We are to endure it. And the Father does not sit idly by and watch us fulfill our self-destructive impulses. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which you have all participated, you are an illegitimate children and not a son. Let me distinguish between punishment and discipline. Discipline is for your correction. Discipline is not an execution of a sentence because of guilt. That's already happened for you if you're a Christian. God has already punished Jesus for your sins. But God as your Father will discipline you. He will use the rod of correction in your life to bring you back into line. I have had that experience. I know for certain I've had that experience happen in my life. Third, he may do things like this to grow us into maturity. That's the old argument where there is no pain, there is no gain. I'm not sure I believe all of that, but I can tell you this. God will use different things to grow us up into Christ and to show us how much we need him. And pain may be what he does to drive us to Christ. Fourth, God may permit suffering or difficulty or hardship in our lives because we need to exercise faith. Some sufferings, like the suffering of Job or the man born blind in John chapter 9, have no discernible explanation. God does not tell us the reason for the trial. And we have to place our trust in God's reasons, even if He withholds from us the reason we go through certain trials. The Bible makes that clear in a number of places. Paul's life was difficult. The world was in need of the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes you have to ask the question, like, what is the possible reason could there ever be for keeping Paul in prison? And then, in this chapter, gathering sticks to keep a fire burning, he gets snake bitten. Why? Surely there were better things for Paul to be doing, but God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But God used Paul and did what he did to Paul to prepare him to be effective. And so because of Paul's moment there, he was invited to the, probably the governor of the island. His name was Publius. And there uh, healed the uh, official's father. And then uh, the miracle occurred. And God had Paul on Malta for other purposes than he knew. And even if the full extent of it was still a mystery, he still used him there. It was a time of extraordinary blessing. I think he spent three months there and uh, was there able to have a ministry to the people on that island, uh, which is wonderful. Now, in conclusion, let's look at the courage that Paul gets from the brothers as he begins to make his way toward Rome as we look at the last part of this passage. It might have looked like that Paul was back to his old ways again, exercising his apostolic gifts for the good of the kingdom of God, but Paul was still a prisoner. He was still bound for Rome and the empire's capital. And there, to be on trial for which a, tri, uh, uh, a 
finding of guilty of a crime that carried the death penalty, the death sentence. After three months in relative comfort and spiritual blessing, a new year had come and the winds began to blow in a favorable way. Probably mid-February, they sailed away from Malta, and Luke gives another detailed description of the voyage from Malta. He even speaks uh, of the ship itself, an African ship of Alexandria, uh, painted with the twin gods Castor and Pollux, the twin sons of Leda, the queen of Sparta, transformed by Zeus into twin gods, representing uh, by the constellation of Gemini. Gemini was considered a sign of good fortune to sailors. As David Peterson points out, the so-called sons of Zeus were regarded as the deities responsible for ensuring the smooth sailing of ships. Apparently, they were not all powerful. <laughs> the ship sh uh, sailed north-northeast to the harbor of Syracuse. I'm sure most of you know this, but this is not Syracuse, New York. This is... This is Syracuse, Sicily, okay? The largest city in Sicily. And it was a prominent city in Sicily. So obviously Paul went there and spent some time there. And then they uh, got on a ship and the wind changed. Uh, and they set sail for Regium, an important harbor at the toe of Italy on the Italian side of the Strait of Messina, it docked for one day, waiting for favorable weather. The next day, a south wind sprang up, enabling the ship to make the 180-mile journey in two days to the principal port of Italy, Puteoli, modern, I don't know, Pazuoli, on the Bay of Naples. You've heard of Naples, I know. Here, Paul, accompanied by his military guard, disembarked. A delightful thing happened in Puteoli. There we find the brothers were invited to stay for seven days. It, it is not the presence of Christians in a large port city that is surprising, but the fact that Paul was at liberty to seek them out and stay with them for a week. We have all manner of questions as to what the apostles and brothers did and said during that week, none of which was given attention here for us by the narrator, Luke. But... Luke, in almost breathless fashion, brings the journey to an end by simply stating, and so we came to Rome. Paul had announced his great ambition to reach the city of Rome seven or eight years before. About four years later in Corinth, Paul was given a promise, you must testify in Rome. All these years, Rome had been the focal point of his missionary strategy and endeavors. Now at last, he was in the imperial capital. God had worked out things in an extraordinary way to bring him to this point. Luke tells us, however, that as Paul neared Rome, there was a great expression of Christian love to encourage him that occurred. Um, it's, it's a remarkable idea that Paul was on the outskirts of the city and a delegation from Rome came to meet the apostles and his companions, making it as far as the three taverns, some 33 miles from the capital, and others going another 10 miles to the uh, Forum of Appius, which is known as the Appian Way, which was the best paved road of its time into Rome. The Christians stood by the apostles 
in Rome, just as Luke and Aristarchus had been prepared to join him from his journey to Caesarea. Even as a prisoner, he was afforded something like his own triumphal entry into the capital. Christian love of this kind was a joy to behold. When Christians are in trouble, that is, made a prisoner in Paul's case, fellow brothers and sisters ought to rally around them and offer help and support. The mere presence of fellow believers offering love and fellowship is a testimony to the Jesus likeness to an unmarried mother scared to death, a brother or sister undergoing the harrowing, harrowing effects of a divorce, to a teenager who's fallen into temptation and needs someone to show him or her the way forward. That's why we are a community, and that's why when one of us gets into trouble, sometimes the natural reaction of us as a church is to withdraw from them rather than reaching out to them. However, in this church, I've been here a good long time, and I have noticed that there are people in our church who seem to be gifted with the gift of mercy who seem to move out to any kind of hurting person, whether they're deserving or not. You know what I mean? Sometimes people mess up. Sometimes people make big mistakes. Sometimes Christians do things that are unspeakable. But rather than rejecting them and casting them off, what about mercy? What about compassion? What about a willingness to move out of yourself and go and try to see that person and try to speak to them and encourage them and lift them up? Paul's not coming to Rome as some sort of uh, Roman patriarch or some sort of big wig full of pomp and circumstance. He's a prisoner in chains. And yet these believers travel all this way to meet him and greet him and walk the final steps with him into Rome. The ministry of these brothers strengthened Paul in his hour of need. And perhaps you know somebody right now in this body or someone uh, uh, around this body who needs the loving compassion of a Christian person. You have access to them and you can go to them and you can provide them some kind of support. Um, maybe you're thinking of that person right now. Maybe you need to text them or pick up the phone or send them an email or arrange some kind of way to connect with them and to meet with them and not write them off. Paul is able to take strength from the fellowship of the saints as they greet him. He thanks God despite the fact that he's in change. He appreciates, and even when we cannot understand all the reasons for our predicament, God never abandons us and provides encouragement to us often through His people. Paul has certainly, uh, as he goes into Rome, will be confined, waiting for a trial, but we can be certain of his continuing gospel ministry. You will see, as we continue to the end of this book, Paul, no matter where he lands, has opportunities time and again to share the gospel of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done to the various people he meets. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter and for the things we have seen in this chapter which speak to us. Lord, help us to be people of compassion, 
People who are slow to judge and quick to run to show mercy and compassion for broken people and broken situations. Uh, Lord, help us not to treat people who fail as if they're lepers who are unclean, but rather as fellow sinners who need Jesus. And we pray you'll shape our hearts in that way. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, would you bless us now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and commune with you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.